Father, once again, we come before you as we open your word. Uh, we want to understand it correctly. Uh, we want to use it in our lives. We want to disciple others with these truths. Um, but we want to please you as we walk in your ways. And so thank you for the opportunity. Um, may this be beneficial as we go through a hard part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it comes across um, judgmental. Help us to see what you're really trying to do for us. It's always for our benefit. And uh, just teach us your ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Matthew 5. We're looking at verses 27 to 32. There's an outline in your bulletin, I believe. I guess I didn't flip that one over to make sure it was in there. Um, that you can follow along if you'd like to, to do that. Some of you do not like outlines. You've made that very clear to me. So you, you can ignore them just like you ignore the hymnal when you don't need that either. Um, but as long as you're in the scriptures, that's all we're after. We're just trying to give you tools to use. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount for a while now. When we started, we realized there was a great multitude there um, that's listening. His disciples come up to him. That's whom he is instructing. But he gives them the way to God as he instructs them in the Beatitudes, right in the very beginning, verses 3 to 12 of chapter 5. And we, we've made it crystal clear that if you don't have Beatitude number one, you don't have any of them. If you haven't come spiritually bankrupt before God, there's nothing to mourn about. There, there's no way you're going to become meek and, as you walk down through those characteristics there. So the spiritual bankruptcy is what's missing in our world today. So many people that you may witness to are um, confessing by the way they turn you down or justify their sin or refuse to flat out believe that they, they don't want God's way. They, they are not going to admit they're drowning spiritually and asking Jesus Christ to come rescue them. And so they're going to make him go away. We share that example. In World War II, they'd have ships go down out in the Pacific, for the one story that I read, and they'd go try to rescue the enemy as they were floating in the water. And some of them would spit toward the men trying to rescue them, turn around and swim off and swim down. That's what people are doing spiritually today. So don't, don't get frustrated or discouraged as you share the gospel and you try to reach people. It's a choice that God has ultimately given to them. But don't give up on them either. You may have to swim after them. And that may be dangerous. But find ways to, to share with them, to build relationships, to help them to know that Jesus Christ lives in you and he can live in them as well. But that's what the Beatitudes are for. He pointed out clearly to them what he expected because they were salt and light. Remember how we brought out, once they're being instructed by Jesus Christ, once the disciples who simply mean learners are taken in this information, they are now wise. That salt was a metaphor in that day. They understood it meant to be a wise person. You are the salt. You are the wise ones. Why was that? Because they had been given truth. They were now responsible. It didn't mean they were necessarily even saved. But they had information that they could respond to. And so he explains this very clearly to them and deals with it and says, let your light shine in such a way that they may see your, what? Your good works. And therefore glorify God or give credit to God. A lot of people confuse what's going on here that they think they're coming to Christ because they give credit. Every knee is going to bow one day. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Most of them will be unsaved. So you want to understand the truth goes out, but a genuine uh, conversion is not just a decision that's made. It's not walking an aisle or praying a prayer. It is a changed life. 
And so when someone tells me they come to Christ, I rejoice on a limited scale. I'm excited, but I will wait. I'm kind of going, let me see it. When I start seeing it, I get excited. I remember one person I was dealing with that um, professed salvation, and within five minutes, they, pulled, they picked up the phone and they called their brother and asked him to forgive him. 25 years, estranged. And I got excited. That was radical change. That was an indication of repentance in this person's life. And I've seen that over and over. That's what happens in a genuine believer. The Holy Spirit takes over. They become a new creature in Christ Jesus. So this is what Jesus is trying to emphasize to them, starting them with the wisdom that they can respond to. And when you go through the Beatitudes, you can see the steps taken. And they're obvious. Today, so many people are questioning, is somebody a Christian or not? The child of God and the child of the devil in 1 John 3.10 are obvious. If you have questions, there's something wrong. You need to ask more questions and pursue. You guys are getting quieter. I don't know what I'm saying here that's <laughs> causing you to shut down. But, but the, the, this is what we've already discussed. And then he goes in and he says, here's how you get the righteousness. Here's the value of the law. I didn't come to do what? Abolish the law, but to fulfill it. See, I can start pulling some stuff out of you. And he did. Jesus Christ is living that out. He goes into five specific areas that he's dealing with that I believe are aimed at the scribes. The experts in the law had taught them some of these things, and he's going back to clarify them. You have heard, but I say. You have heard, but I say. And he's clarifying just five areas. He could have done 55. Could have done 500, because they were just distorting the law so bad. We covered last week, and what was last week's clarification? Okay? And what is murder? Is it just going out and actually physically killing somebody? Raka is not what we want to do to people when we're driving our cars, is it? <laughs> Calling them stupid fools. Stupid idiots is, is a strong way of saying it. The kids maybe don't, aren't listening to me. But, but he's processing this and he's helping them understand it's not just a physical act that probably none of you have done. I'm not asking for confessions, but you may have, and God dealt with that accordingly. We've had people in here from prison before, people who had been caught, sentenced, paid their, their time, and were released. But the, the whole thing is he's trying to clarify, it's the heart. It's the heart that, he's, that God is after. That's what the Ten Commandments were all about. The first four aimed toward God, the next six aimed toward man. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. That's why those Ten Commandments summarize all that. This is what he was after. So he goes into a second one today that none of you like for me to preach on. Because this is so common in our culture. I am not here to condemn you. There'll be others here who have broken oaths or whatever other things. They're, not, they're hating their enemies. There are other guilty people. So just because this one fits with you and this may be your past, it is something that God forgives, Right? Okay, yeah, I'm going to get a little bit of response out of that. And then he takes it away just like he does any other sin because of Christ's death on the cross. We get hung up on some of these. There may be people not here today because they knew I'm preaching on this. And it's just too, too hard. Because their lifestyle, their past, what they've done, they've committed adultery. Maybe, as I told you one time, I had a couple come in my office. One lady married nine times, the other, the guy married five times, and they were coming in for counseling. How do we stay together? We're struggling. And I sit there and I go, what? And I told you, I got up, locked the door, sat back down. They're going, what was that about? I said, that's what you need to do. No more marriages. 
That's not the option. You don't go looking somewhere else. You, you're here now. You're married. As, as hard and as bad as that might be what's going on in the past, this one you got to make work. And so we had a really good time together. And I finally unlocked the door and let him out. <laughs> I don't know where they went. I got a letter, and they, and they responded very positively. But I'm not advocating divorce and remarriage, and we'll get to that at the end here. And I'm going to take too long. There's too much here to cover. So let's go right into what, what he's talking about with the second area of adultery being explained. He says in verse 27 of Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. All right, where does that come from? Ten commandments which are found in Exodus. And what, which commandment is this? Number seven. Number six is thou shalt not murder. So he's put two of them in order, um, but out of order in the, where he started. But he goes to the seventh commandment here, and he's trying to reveal to them. It's in um, Exodus 20. It's in Deuteronomy 5 as the law is repeated. And he's, he's making a flat-out statement. That's what you've heard. Now, it hasn't just been taught to them. It's been explained to them that the only way you can, can commit adultery is the physical act with somebody else. And Jesus is going to explain that's never what God intended. That's never what the Ten Commandments were trying to get at. It was always from the heart. And this is the problem today. It was the problem with the scribes, Pharisees, whoever was justifying. I haven't done it physically, so I can do whatever I want mentally. And he's going to correct that, isn't he? You're going quiet again. Even a smile is not quiet to me. I, I know you're still alive. And cold weather, is that what? Okay. So... He, he lays this out. You have heard from your religious teachers. And again, the emphasis here with this multitude is they knew the basics of the law. They all went, I've heard that since I was a little kid. I can, I can quote the Ten Commandments to you. Can anybody here quote the Ten Commandments? They could. A lot of it was orally passed on. They didn't walk around with Bibles. They, they had the scroll opened up in the synagogue on Sunday. On Saturday. Sorry. So... He's trying to explain something to them that they're very familiar with because they'd grown up hearing this. It had been taught, explained, enforced, but limited to only the physical acts. Not the spiritual, not the heart. This is going to shock some of them. They knew it was true, what he's going to share, but it wasn't what they were living. So as he comes in here, you shall not commit adultery. This is moikeo or morkuo. This is a, a specific word that means adultery. It's not a general word about fornication which can be sexual intercourse between single individuals, uh, and it can include incest, bestiology, all kinds of homosexuality. Any of that can fit under fornication. This one's very specific. This is to have unlawful sexual intercourse with the spouse of another. He's not stuttering. He, he's not confusing them. He's not trying to say something they don't understand. This sin is referred to directly at least 45 times in the Old Testament. Some of them figuratively where he's applying it to being adulterous in some way. Some, much of it literally, physically. And what was the punishment for adultery in the Old Testament? Death. Where's that found? In the Bible. Old Testament, since I said Old Testament. Leviticus chapter... This is how I know who's, who's looked into this beforehand. Chapter 20, verse 10 is one of them you can look at that helps to explain this. Leviticus 20, verse 10... And it reads as such. He says, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, 
the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Pretty clear? What did they expect when the woman was caught in John 8? Brought before them, what did they want Jesus to do? Have her stoned. Now I know it's questionable whether or not that passage is in John 8, but, but the illustration is there for us to look at. They're trying to trap him. They want him to do something that would have been really, really mean. Really, really sad. How often do you think it was happening, even back then? Because it didn't happen to her in the story. And what, was, what did Jesus use to get her out of, the, out of problems? He went after their own conscience. And as soon as they had to realize, I'm just as guilty as she is, then they had no leg to stand on. Second place is Deuteronomy 22, and verse 22. Again, Deuteronomy is second law. It's the younger generation, the older ones have been killed off that didn't believe God, that wouldn't go in the land. They wandered for 40 years, they died off. Deuteronomy is that younger generation, 20 and under, plus Joshua and Caleb. And they're going into the land, and he, so he reminds them in Deuteronomy 22, 22, when he says, If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. What did the woman have to do to not die? Because it's also in the law. She had to cry out, because then, what's the man doing? He's raping her. But if they're consensual, they both are to die. They've both okayed what God says is an abomination. So the law was really clear. I'm not trying to drill this in any more than necessary. But what would happen to America if we started applying Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22? Population control. And who would carry it out? The ones without sin. So when Jesus explains this to them, what's really adultery, what's really at the heart of adultery, to explain it that way, you, aren't, you don't have anybody left to throw stones. At least not any men. Because he told them, and, and again, Romans 13, 9 and 10, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments are. When I commit adultery with a woman as a man, I am not loving her. When I hate somebody, I am not loving them. When, when I covet, when I steal, those things are all signs that I don't love my neighbor. So this is where the control ought to kick in, at least for the believer. But what, again, I stress here, this message is not for condemnation, but it is for correction that we stop watering down what God has made really, really clear. I have so many people that have, uh, over the years, that have told me how pastors have, have made excuses for adultery, have made excuses for remarriage, have just kind of went, up. Oh, everybody's doing it. And obviously God wants you to be happy. Really? Is, is that, I don't know if I find a verse like that in there regarding adultery. That if you're not having a good time with your spouse, find another one. I just had talked to somebody on the phone this past week that said a friend had told them to do that. And encouraging it like it's just part of the church they go to. So we have a problem here. This isn't to condemn any one of us as sinners from our past, but it is definitely to make some corrections. So look what Jesus says. Verse 28. But I say to you, this is emphatic, I told you, each time, he's, the, the word I is put 
first in the Greek sentence. It's a way of stressing it. It's a way of putting emphasis on the word. So emphatic is emphasized. It's the first word. It has a higher authority. He, has, he is the higher authority. And he's, he's stressing here that I, have, as God, as I, as the teacher, am going to explain some things to you. I say to you that everyone, or any, whoever, and you could use either word there, who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now this crowd is sitting there. They're used to what the scribes, especially the experts in the law, had said. And these people are going, what? I didn't touch anybody. If you look on a woman to lust for her, you have committed adultery already with her in your heart. He's aimed at the men. They were the leaders in society, not like we are today. Our society has changed. The Jewish society changed. But the men were responsible here, that they were to lead. And so he makes it obviously clear to them Everyone who looks on a woman, who focuses their attention, gazing, staring. This word implies an earnest contemplation. Intentional, repeated is the idea behind it. That's the intent. So this adultery begins in the heart. Just like murder began in the heart with hate. Adultery begins in the heart with lust. Once you open that door, once that starts becoming the pattern where you're at, if it's with a secretary, if it's with a family member, it could even be, if it's with a neighbor, if it's with somebody at work, whatever it may be, as soon as you crack that door, you're in big trouble. Slam it shut. Don't crack the door. I was told, and I grew up in a church with five major leaders that had committed adultery with, with individuals. I was young on some of it. When I got up, I was on staff, and I turned in my resignation when I found out how they handled the last one. They told the church I left to go to seminary. They never told them I resigned because they were tolerating sin in the church. That was not a fun thing to do. I'd grown up in that church. That's where I'd gotten saved, in second grade. And it was very difficult. One of the couples instantly killed on the road not long after they left their spouses and took off together. Head-on car crash, dead. You think that got anybody's attention? But the idea here is they started with this looking on a woman to lust for her. They worked together at the church. That couple did. And another one, same thing, a, a, a gentleman at the church who was in leadership and ran off with somebody, and it just destroyed his family. And I was a youth leader, and both of his boys were in the youth group that I served. And it just tore things up. One boy became outwardly angry. The other boy took it all in and pinned it all up to where we had to go to UCLA to find out what was stressing him. It's not a good thing. It is not a loving thing to do. When you commit adultery with someone, it has many effects. It's dominoes. It's like playing dominoes, and the dominoes go out in 50, 60 directions all at once. And as soon as you commit adultery, you hit those little dominoes. Boom, 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 boom. And what does it say? And I, what do I care about those people? I don't. I don't love them, I love me. And I love what I can get. How long does it last? Because I've been around some of those as well. Not very long. Because you don't trust each other. You already deserted somebody else, so you could, you're always wondering. And then you're questioning. Is, is he looking at some secretary at work? Is, is she finding somebody when I'm gone over at the neighbor's? It's, it's all 
detrimental to our lives. It's not helpful to us. And so God is always trying to give us what's best. And so he puts marriage together for life. You may want to kill each other once in a while. You may sleep on the couch, even though you shouldn't. Good, good example there. I told my wife I'd never sleep on the couch. Eh. I may have reneged once or twice. On purpose. No, I, I fell asleep sometimes. But, um, but she was mad enough she didn't wake me up. That, that was the... <laughs> Usually she wakes me up and kicks me and says, hey, time to go to bed. But, but I failed in that area. I, I've learned, don't make promises you can't keep. Just promise yourself that's what you're aiming for. That you're going to resolve things. You're not going to go to bed with them. You're not going to let the sun go down on your anger. So he's, he's trying to help them, and yet some of them are looking at this like the scribes, Pharisees, that this is, oh, man, he's creating a mess for us. But when you look at this situation, to lust is to desire, to covet, to long for. It's to set your heart upon something. And right now, I, I would venture to say that many of you have your heart set on something because it's already distracting you from listening to me. Now, you don't have to raise hands or answer yes or no on that. But, but there's pressures on you. And, and some of those things are joyful pressures. They're, they're good things. It's like, I can't wait to get to, and what would, the, what would be some positive things? You don't have to confess. Confess for somebody else. <laughs> I can't wait to go fishing this afternoon. Is it even open? Don't know. I can't wait, to, I can't wait for the snow to fall so I can get on my snowmobile. And, and you, your brain will start running off on things, and it's, it's occupying your, your mind. It, you're setting your heart upon it to the point where it distracts you from everything else. It's hard. Happens really easily, but not if you're walking by the Spirit. Because the Spirit's going to keep you locked on to what you need. And so when you see a woman, it may not be your fault. Remember David and Bathsheba? Was David innocent initially? Yeah. He's just walking around on top. And they imply by the passage in 2 Samuel that he should have gone out to war because that's what kings do, but David stayed home. Now, implication doesn't flat out say he was right or wrong. But he's walking around on the palace. And what does he already know goes on? His, his is a higher position. What does he know when he looks over the edge he may see? It's the only privacy some of them had, and it's hot until you're outside, you're in the sun. You may see the rooftop of another individual, and the women would go up there and bathe. David knew that, too. But he looked, and he looked so hard that he ordered them to bring her to him, knowing that she was another man's wife. This is setting your heart upon something where David acts on it. And not only did he accept that, then he makes sure her husband dies. He, he has this plan. He keeps trying to cover up, cover up, and all you're doing is making it worse. You can't cover up sin. But we all do, don't we? We joke about it with little kids in diapers. When they, when they fill them and they're a certain age, where do they go? Behind the couch. I don't know what it is. It's built into them. We had enough that I saw it often. And, and you have to go find them. Usually you can smell them first, but you have to go find them and help them out. It is not a disciplined thing. It's a childish thing. So you, you deal with it. But, but we do the same thing to God sometimes when we sin. We think, I can hide. I can cover this up. Nobody's going to know. And he's trying to get to their hearts and help them to tell them, don't do that. There's, there's times, and again, let me get it, and I'm trying to imply, David kind of wasn't expecting that woman to be in that bathtub at that moment. All right? I don't think he went over to the wall and went, where is she? Because somebody had reported to him. I don't see that in Scripture. But as soon as he spotted her, what should he have done? Turn, gone. 
And where should he have not gone again? To that wall. At that time of day or whatever. Or he would tell his servants, you let me know if there's something going on around here that I shouldn't see. You help me out because I don't want to do something wrong. The problem with David, he had too many wives. And that's another whole message and I can't get into that. He'd already trained himself legally because he wasn't taking them from other people that it was okay. He had 26 children. We think we have it bad. But he had an entourage to take care of all that, and different wives, so don't get me wrong, but, but many of them. So as you're struggling with this whole thing, you're looking at it, and Jesus is saying to them, I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman, who covets, desires, longs for a woman, to lust for her, is what he's trying to stress, commits adultery, has already committed adultery with her. Where? In his heart. This is, this is the problem. This is not just a man thing. Today, it's, it's a woman thing. I've seen more and more commercials where it's the women who see some guy take his shirt off and all the women just go, ah, Google-eyed. I don't even know if that even works. Don't answer. I don't want to know. But they're just all flocking toward this guy. They're coveting. They're lusting. It'll lead to, to bad things. It isn't his body that you should be wound up about. It's his heart. How do you get to the heart? How do you know a, a man's heart? Or how do you know a woman's heart? You get to know them. And the women, in turn, need to cover up their bodies. Right? Another problem today. Low necklines, short skirts are coming back from the little bit that I've seen. We're watching something on TV the other day, and I think it was a kid's program, and something came on. You even saw that this morning with something. And, and you're going, oh, and you get to the, the clicker to get, rid of, get it off the screen. It's everywhere. It's all mixed in. Too tight a clothes? Women don't understand, or do they? Why am I wearing what I wear? Because I want to be noticed? Or because I want to glorify God? Do I wear what I wear that I only should wear in the bedroom for my husband? Or do I like it when men notice me? That's a, that's a problem with the woman's heart that she has to decide. And it doesn't justify, it doesn't free up the man to be able to do whatever he wants to do. But those are the ones the guys have to run even faster away from. If I was Bathsheba, I would have had a tent over my bathtub, knowing that somebody can look at me from up above. She was loose that way. They could easily put something up where you couldn't even see her. So you, all these questions only God knows. But when she came in and she didn't cry out for help, what did Leviticus and Deuteronomy say? Both of them should have died. They're committing adultery. Oh, we can't do that to the king. The king gets to do whatever he wants, really. Jesus is trying to correct a heart problem here. Remember in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you have that one memorized, right? There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Tested would be a good word there, because that's what God allows. But when does it become a temptation? Using the same word. It's when I take it too far. When I'm on the wall and God says, okay, you got a decision to make. You weren't expecting this, but there she is. Now, what are you going to do with it? If you're walking by the Spirit, boom, off the wall. 
If I'm not walking by the Spirit, boom, into my bedroom. This is why it's so critical that we walk by the Spirit all the time, that we're in the Word in the morning or in the evening or however that works for you, that we're meditating and processing that and letting it dominate our lives, giving the Holy Spirit ammunition to guide us in the right way. This is what's critical. And so if I neglect the Word one day, eh, two days, eh, three days, where are the spiritual hunger pains? Or do I just kind of go numb? That's why I don't want to do that. I'm Lord willing, make time every day before anything. First thing in the morning. Even before a sermon that I don't want to preach because nobody likes this message. I've got to get into the Psalms right now what I'm going through. I've got to spend time looking at it, filling my own mind with the right things and the, and in the right relationship and letting God talk to me before I can go out and share his word. But I'm human. I struggle. There, I need to do what Scripture tells me to do in 2 Timothy 2.22, and that is to flee fornication. I've given that advice out many times to many people. You run. I've had somebody call me up on the phone and said, boy, I got some secretary that just really... I said, run. But you won't leave me alone. Move. See, we won't take the drastic steps, we'll get to that in a moment, that really are necessary. But the solution here is for a man to flee. 2 Timothy 2.22 is an easy one to remember. 2 Tim 2.2.2. If I said too many twos. But when it comes to a woman, a woman needs to fear. A woman is not fleeing as much as she's fearing God. So she dresses appropriately. And she doesn't get herself in situations where there's a flirtatious man around her. Or she's trying to make impressions on her boss. Or whoever else it may be. You've got to watch out. I was instructed when I was young in the ministry... Have windows in your office. I've told many of you that before. So I have windows. I leave my windows open. I want you, now I realize you can't see in very good from outside, but I want people to see what's going on there. I have nothing to hide. You can walk up to that window. Well, it used to be my office. And, and know what I'm doing at any point in time. Now you notice that Robin doesn't have a window in her office. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. I don't know what that means. It was supposed to be a storeroom, and you were supposed to have an office out here in the bigger area which is all going to be glass. What does that mean? Okay, nobody wants to know. So he's processing this, and he's explaining to them, and he's throwing them a curveball because they're really shocked. So once they understand the point, we can come back to it. He says two things in verse 29. This is called hyperbole. He is not being literal in verse 29. I'm skipping so much stuff, but I don't have the time. Hyperbole is a deliberate exaggeration used for effect. I looked up in the dictionary. The one they gave in the dictionary I thought was kind of strange. A mile high ice cream cone. Where did they get that from? There were so many other ones that would be so much easier. And it even took up too many words. What is hyperbole to you? Okay, you don't know. So, deliberate exaggeration used for effect, not intended to be understood or carried out literally. There are people here, and there's actually a really well-known religious leader, I will leave his name out, who did something to himself physically so that he would never have a sexual problem. Mutilated himself. Took this, these verses and said that I need to cut off some body parts so that I don't ever have this temptation. Guess what? It's not a physical problem. 
It's a heart problem. It's a spiritual problem. There are people who think, well, if I just didn't have those things, I wouldn't be tempted. Nope. The sexual side of it is not the only reason people commit adultery. It may be just that there's a man who will sit and listen to me. And I have fallen in love with him because he cares. Which is why husbands need to be really careful to make sure their wives know they're cared for. As Christ cared for the church. It may not be a sexual thing. You may not even be able to process that or physically perform that. But they care. And so my heart moves away from my husband and it moves to this guy. Because he's a good counselor. Because he, he really takes care of me. And he understands me. And he'll sit and talk and talk and talk. And my husband comes home and says, hi. Next thing he's off to something else. Up, oh, guilt. There it is, guilt again. I didn't come to, to bring condemnation on you. But to help you understand that there's some changes that need to take place. But he says here in verse 29, if your right hand makes you stumble, this is a first class condition. Since your right hand makes you stumble. He's not even questioning it. He's telling him right out. Tear it out and throw it from you. That's pretty drastic. For it's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. This, your right eye, how valuable is your right eye? I got another one. Right? Is that how you look at it? There goes your depth perception when there's only one. I had a friend who grew up with only one eye, and um, he had, had to do special things to get a driver's license. And one of them was he had to be proven to them that he was moving his head regularly, that he could see more than what, um, with one eye, than, um, or not more necessarily, but the same as people with two. And so here you are, he's taken a very prized possession, right? Highly prized. My eyesight, but only one, but it's my best vision. Typically, your right eye is your dominant eye. Unless you're left-handed, and then you're in your, not in your right mind or whatever. All of those things. But, but he's trying to bring up something that's very, very difficult for people to give up. Here he's saying, if your right eye makes you stumble, since it makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. What is he trying to say? It's not being literal. He's not telling people, if he was, guess what? The audience of men right now would have one eye missing. If they cared at all about God, if they were spiritual at all, one eye would be missing. Because I didn't, I didn't want to fall into temptation. Pluck. And he specifically uses that word, to pluck it out. Tear it out is the idea of what he's trying to say. I don't know what method you would use, but he's not being literal. He's using hyperbole to make a point. He's deliberately exaggerating for the effect. If it causes you to falter, to stumble, to trip on the snare that it's talking about, you're falling for the trap. And again, I hesitate to share too much here, personally. But, but I've had, as many men in this room could testify to, I've had opportunities where women wanted my attention. Why? I chalked it up to, I was being nice to them, treated them with respect, was spiritual when their husband wasn't, maybe the husband wasn't even saved. There's a lot of motivations that can drive that. But to the point of, of, of one woman in particular holding my hand at the door and not letting go. Don't do that back there. My wife can do that. And my grandchildren can do it. But, but she didn't let go. And I'm shaking, shaking, shaking. And all of a sudden I'm realizing, oh, I can't get my hand back. I look back and I got the look. Women know what that is even though they give it. Men know what that is because it's what's given to them at times. And I realized, okay, we got a problem. 
Nothing physically was the problem. But it was a problem. Because humanly speaking, this person was pretty. But I had a problem, and I had to deal with it. I'm not going to go into that any further. But, but I made it really clear in public settings, I love my wife. I'm committed to my wife. I don't want you, is what I was having to say, but I was trying not to make it. But I've seen that person in years since that happened, and that was a long time ago. And, I, and my wife will murder me if I commit adultery. Yes, that, that had a little bit of effect. Even sleeping on the couch won't get me out of it. And so you, you've, dealt, you've dealt with some of that in your own lives. And you have to run. You have to deal with it. I've dealt with others. I've had one gentleman that did some things wrong, got a woman attached to him. I told him to move. He had to leave the state he was in and move to another state for her to finally leave him alone. I'm dealing with another one now. I'm telling him the same thing. Somebody's globbed onto you, and it's not good. Run. This is what men need to do. And this is what he's talking about. This is the um, deliberate exaggeration for the effect. You need to do some drastic things. How hard is it for you just to pick up and move? How do you explain that to your wife? Why you're moving? And the one gentleman I talked to, I told him, once you get moved and resettled, you need to tell your wife what you've done. Now, you've created the crazy woman. That's why she's chasing you. And he did tell her, because I knew she could handle it. But he had to get it out, and she needed to know what his, one of his areas that he's struggling with. So they, they dealt with it in time, and they dealt with it well. But it's not good as far as what's happening. He's saying this is where you need to be extreme. Radical response. Pluck it out. It's a command. It's not an option. Command to remove your eye from temptation. Throw it from you. Cast it away. Send it forth. This could result in a new job moving away and whatever other things may happen. You've got to take this area seriously. And not too many people are. They run toward the problem. They find somebody that likes them and they just take advantage of it. They're not thinking about the long-term process of what this would do. I have reprocessed that just with that one person. And I said, if I had done that, first off, her husband would have killed me. Then my wife would have killed me. Double death is not good. It would have destroyed my family, my extended family, my position as a pastor. And you could just go on. I could look at it. I could see the dominoes that were very obvious right up front. And I thank God over and over and over. I thought I was going to marry somebody when I was younger. It had nothing to do with adultery. God cut it off. I thank him over and over and over that he's directing our lives. But we need to walk with him. We need to take him seriously, deal drastically with sin in our lives. But it doesn't tell us to mutilate our bodies. That's not the problem. Fix the heart. Find out why I'm struggling with that. Get the scriptures in to make the changes necessary. So that when you're tempted, you think of scripture right off. Like this one. You should not commit adultery. Don't do it. Don't do it. He gives them a second one in case they didn't figure it out. When he says here with the first, to take the right eye out, it's better for you that one of your parts perish, and that this carries a specific idea to be utterly destroyed, to be lost. Put that part of your body to death forever and ever. That's far better than for your whole body to be cast into hell, it says in the New American. It's actually Gehenna here. All right? He's trying to be specific with what's going on. And he's trying to bring it out here because this is eternal damnation. <coughs> 
If you become a lover of sin rather than a lover of God, you are condemning yourself. Not that you lost your salvation, but you never had it, and that's what you're demonstrating here. You're a lover of the flesh, not a lover of the spirit. Does that make sense? So this is what he's warning them of, to do. It is eternal damnation that you receive when you put sin first and you reject God's ways. Verse 30, if, first class condition, since your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. Very similar issues here. It causes you to falter. Tripping on that snare, he says, in this case, though, instead of throw it, uh, um, throw it from you, this one says to cut it off. It's a command. Remove it from your body. Stop its ability to act. Prevent successful completion. Cut off the opportunity. Throw it from you. Cast it away. This, again, is going to result in new habits. You're going to uh, stop going to maybe a gym or the beach or a club or wherever else, a bar. You may stop doing some things you're doing right now and you think, I can handle it. Is your eye causing you to stumble? Is the heart being drawn that direction? Cut it off. I walked into a bar one time. Yeah, it's almost, it was a joke. No, I'm just kidding. I don't tell jokes, remember, they don't come out very well. But I walked in one time and it was so humorous, and again, some of you have heard this before, because the first person met somebody walking out the double doors as we walked in and they went, ah, they, they're looking at me and they're going, this is the first time I've ever been here. <laughs> I knew him, I, it was an acquaintance, it wasn't somebody from church, it was just an acquaintance. But they were all of a sudden guilty. Walk inside and again you get another one. And I forget what they even said, my brain's starting to lose it. But they made another excuse. It's like, this is your life. If you don't want to be in here, or you don't believe God expects you to be in here, then why are you in here? It's got nothing to do with me. Don't drive the speed limit because you might drive by the pastor. Drive it because of what God wants. You may find the, the pastor not keeping the speed limit. That doesn't give you... <laughs> that doesn't give you an excuse. Oh, the pastor speeds, so I get to speed. No, your focus is on God, and this is what he's trying to get him back to. But deal with this very seriously. I have a lot of verses I can't even bring in here. Matthew 18, 8, though, is one that repeats this idea, which is kind of interesting that just a little further on in the story, he's using the same information to get their attention. And the same repeat. It's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into Gehenna. All right? This is the fiery hell. This isn't just Hades, which is sometimes it translates. This is into eternal punishment. But he's not talking about mutilating your body. He's talking about taking drastic measures with our lives. So now you get to the juicy part. As you look at this, you're trying to figure out, why is he all of a sudden throw in verses 31 and 32? What was the issue? That you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, when it happens, by simply looking on a woman to lust after her in the heart, you've already done it. That's the point he's making. Why verses 31 and 32? Because there's two ways to commit adultery. Let me read a little bit. I have a page that I've handed out to some of you. I'm just going to read it because it's quicker and easier. Matthew 31 and 32. The idea, except for the cause of unchastity. Some points. Number one. The context involves verses 27 to 32. Regarding the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And Jesus shows two examples of breaking this commandment. Lust and divorce. Okay? You've got to fix that in your brain because that's not what you think of when you go in here. Number two, the focus is on the husband. 
Verse 31 is a perversion of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. The exception clause explains that the husband is innocent of making her commit adultery if the wife has already committed some form of immorality. Just thrown in. They, they think the exception clause is giving me an excuse to do it. It's the other way around. The exception clause is you can't make her commit adultery if she's already committed adultery. That's all it's trying to say. And people make all kinds of stuff out of this. Number three, if a man is allowed to divorce his wife because of unchastity and marry another, then why is remarrying a divorced woman considered adultery? As you get to later on. I'm going to walk through this, but I'm just giving you bullet points up front. And this is what Mark 10 covers. I may have just said that wrong. But it covers in Mark, and he leaves out the exception clause. Number four, if the divorced woman cannot remarry, then she is not technically divorced, but separated. The marriage bond with her husband still exists. That's why remarrying a divorced woman is adultery. Now, I covered that really quickly. Let's walk through this in the limited time I have left. To help you understand, this is the area I think people are giving far more excuses to. Not, not the lustful part, looking at a woman, I think everybody understands how that works, and it's not good. Although they may justify it, that it's okay, at the moment, under the circumstances, for me. Because of, it, we just start find, coming up with reasons why, not, no, I can excuse that one. You can't, and you shouldn't, and it has consequences. But when he gets to the second one, this one's being ignored today. Look at verse 31. It was said, going back, similar format, implied that you have heard, because obviously you heard it from somewhere if it was said. But whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Where is that found? Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. So they're dealing with something in the Old Testament. As he goes into this, this struggle back then, religious leaders were teaching on that as well. Teaching it out of the law. But what he's bringing up here is whoever sends his wife away is the idea of releases her from marriage. They dismiss the covenant that they have. Marriage is a covenant. Just like Jesus inst installed the new covenant for us in the New Testament. It's a covenant. It's an agreement that's only broken by death. That's it. Not popular today. You could, you could interview 100 pastors, and I bet you if you found two, and I'd be one of them, that we'd be, we're that rare. Because nobody wants to tell their people, well, you can't be happy. You made some bad choices. You married the wrong person. You became a believer. They've rejected you and walked away. And so we want you happy. So you go get married again. God says don't. And this is what he's going to try to explain here. Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That is a command in the passage here. Present, I mean, an aorist imperative. Let him give her a certificate of divorce. Present, supply, deliver. It's kind of like, what do you call that when, they, when the guy shows up and hands you papers? Submit, or what is it? Serve you with divorce papers. And you, you put your hands behind your back and you go, I'm not taking them. You try to find ways, yeah, the sheriff's department has to do that. But you try to find ways to not have to take the papers. But he's saying if, if he does that in this passage, he hands her a certificate of divorce, this certificate that legally separates her, withdraws her, um, called a bill of divorce also. It causes this um, legal document to break their marriage agreement. 
Well, so let's look at Deuteronomy 24 for a second. If I had a couple more hours, we could really cover this more thoroughly. Deuteronomy 24, starting with verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from her house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Now let's stop with that. What's the indecency? You look up the word indecency, anybody look it up this week? I'd rather you answer because it'll stick in your mind. What is it? It's like, okay, you think it's that. What's the word actually mean when you look it up in the Hebrew? The most common way it's translated is nakedness. That's not what you're thinking that you should find there. When you go into this idea of indecency, you're, um, and I'm getting myself back up to where I need to be. It's, it's trying to focus on that whole area that there's some kind of, there it is, I found it, nakedness. She's uncovered herself. Somehow she has brought shame on him. That's what the Old Testament does. Now, the New Testament broadens it out with the word fornication. So you get the idea there's more blame. What if the woman posed for some magazine and her husband found out about it in the Old Testament? That's indecency. I'm divorcing you. You have brought shame on me. You expose your nakedness. It can also be with another man. It can be in a variety of ways. But it, it's an interesting word he puts in there as to what the problem is. Because initially, it wasn't burnt toast. It was more physically um, inappropriate. It was more the, the nakedness idea, the shame that came in there, is what he's finding her guilty of. And today, if you go to the Middle East, what does a woman take off to, to show, bring out nakedness and bring shame? Her veil. Many of the Muslim countries believe that they have to be covered up. Some of them even cover up their eyes so they can barely see through their thing. She takes her veil off. That is worthy of death in the Muslim world. This is more what he's talking about back then. The husband just had to find something where she went beyond what he wanted her to do. I don't want men to see anything. I want you to wear a tent. And maybe once in a while let them see your eyeballs. No, don't do that because you have very pretty eyes. Cover them up. All these tents are walking around. How do you lust after that? You don't, yeah, with sunglasses on. But, but you don't even know what's in the tent. So it made it a whole lot easier for them just to cover that up, and the men dominate, and the women hide. But the, the issue here is he's telling them in that passage, if they find some kind of indecency, that they give her a certificate of a divorce, why was... God, through Moses, giving them permission to do that. What happened to the woman? And maybe all she did was show her, her face, take her veil down. What happens to the woman when he gives her a certificate of divorce and sends her on her way? Okay, there's nothing. They had no um, provision. They, they were not the owners. They were not the workers. They would go in. When you get to the book of Ruth, what did they do? They had to glean from the fields, which was legally required by the law to leave some of that behind for the poor. But that's where they had to go. And you barely brought home enough each day until she brought home a whole bunch and Naomi starts asking questions. Where'd you get all this? And who gave it to you? 
And then you know how the story goes if you've read Ruth. So, but you're looking here, and they're um, struggling because the woman who's been given the certificate is basically being given a death sentence. God isn't protecting the man. God isn't justifying divorce or making some excuse for the man. He's protecting the woman. If you're going to do that, then it needs to be obvious that it was done and not that she wandered off. She's been an unfaithful wife. No, here's the certificate that you're sending her away. So first off, she's not guilty of being unfaithful. But secondly, she's in big trouble. Because in that day, just like today, many of them would remarry. They'd find somebody that would take care of them because it was an absolute necessity. This is all they're given the certificate for. This is not what's being taught today. They're, people are not looking at the scriptures and understanding what's being said there and recognizing. They're, all, they're putting it one direction to justify my lust instead of the other direction to protect God's people. I know I'm not explaining this well. I will be here for the next hour when the service is over and you can come talk to me. But he, he goes down here. Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's what was said. That's what they understood from Deuteronomy 24. Jesus, again, with an emphasis on um, being emphatic, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity makes her commit adultery. That's what you were doing by sending her away in Deuteronomy 24. She had to find another man. And God was opposed to that. He hates divorce. Where is that found? Close. Malachi, chapter 2, verse 16. God hates it. It's an abomination to him. How's America doing on that? And I'm not trying to bring guilt to you. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. I don't even remember half of whatever you ever did in your life. I'm trying to teach the word. It's not about my guilt. We all deserve to go to hell. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're not making one sin bigger or worse than another. But neither are we wanting to make excuses for it. If I've been there, I should understand it even better as to why I need to go tell people and warn them. We had a couple in Texas that came to us, divorced and remarried. What's sad is, they came to us telling us, if you ever have anybody thinking about getting divorced, send them to us. We will talk them out of it. This has been horrible. And down the road, from what we were told, they got divorced. Even that couple who were trying to do it the right way. When we, we were only down there for five years going to school. When we found out down the road, nope, they didn't make it. But I, I was happy for five minutes. I was, I was happy for a year. That isn't what God's after. God wants this permanent happiness. Remember, blessed, 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 blessed. This is what God wants in our lives. This is the joy that was brought up earlier we were talking that the world doesn't understand. Because it's on the inside. It's built into us in our relationship with Jesus Christ. They can't take it away. But as he struggles with this passage, or he didn't struggle, as we struggle with it, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, so you have this whole thing and they think, well, that, that's an excuse. It, it literally, except for a matter of fornication, is literally what the Greek says. There's some kind of immorality in there. So let's read it this way. Let's read it like it is in Mark. And I, just, I went blank, and I don't know why I'm having trouble remembering if it's Mark 5 or Mark 10. And it's Mark 10. Because it's not in Mark 5. 
As you look at this, verse 11, Mark 10, verse 11, he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. Where's the exception clause? Missing. Why is it missing? Because it isn't doing what most people try to do with it today. You make or commit adultery unless, except for those who have already committed adultery. If your wife actually ran off with some other man, well, then you can't make her commit adultery. She's already committed adultery. That's all they're trying to say. Is that simple? We read into it, oh, I've got to find the exception clause. I've got to come up with these excuses. No, there is no exception clause. You're bound to your spouse as long as they're alive. Where is that found? 1 Corinthians 7, 39. It is a requirement. Romans 7 brings it up as an illustration that you're not set free from your husband apart from death. I've had couples over the years who, who they, they have a divorce, they separate, and then you're praying for them and you're trying to get them reunited and everybody laughs at me when I do that. Oh, they're never going to get back together. Well, then one of them becomes a Christian. But what have the other already done? Remarried. Shut the door. My goal is to help them come to Christ and get reunited. That's impossible. That's exactly what God is good at. That's what he did in your life. How'd you ever become a believer? The world says that's impossible. Satan tries to make it impossible. But he only blinds the minds of the unbelieving. See, people think he goes around and he's shutting down the lights for, for non-Christians. That's not what it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He blinds the minds of the unbeliever. Just like Pharaoh hardened his heart, God came in and met him there. Just like an unbeliever that hardens their heart, Satan meets them there and says, okay, we're going to keep you that way. We're going to get you more and more entrenched in your sin, enjoying your ways. We don't want you sad. We don't want you to be the drunk in the gutter at the rescue mission. Those guys come to Christ. We want you to be this fine, upstanding citizen that everybody respects, and you have a happy home life, which you really don't, but they think you do. And you, you're, you have all these things. That's who he wants. He wants you to not need God. How did the Sermon on the Mount begin with the Beatitudes? First one, spiritually bankrupt. Do they need God? Yeah, they have nowhere else to turn. That's exactly what Satan's working against. I need to, sh uh, to close off. I almost said it stronger, but that's okay. So when he gets down here, again, whoever divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So where does remarriage fit in while one of the spouses is still alive? It, it, it doesn't. And this is where we have to stop making excuses, but you don't want to be the one to go to them and say, no, God says you can't do that. What? You're telling me I have to be unhappy the rest of my life? You heard that? Is that what God wants? Where does happiness come from? Following Christ. Starting with being spiritually bankrupt. Mourning over your sin. Meek, surrendering to God and letting him be in control. And on it goes. This is what brings true happiness. It's not the easy way, but it's the only way. So when they come to me and they say, well, you're trying to tell me I can't be happy. I say, your happiness isn't found in a husband, second husband, third husband, fourth husband, whatever it may be. Your happiness is only found in Jesus Christ. Let's start there. And once you get that resolved, now we can start working on the rest of it. But if you have a couple that's divorced, you need to work on them and get back together. What's it going to take? Murder. Some kind of execution. God stepping in there. Marriage is a covenant for life. Jesus is trying to make them understand 
Lust comes from the heart. Lust breaks up marriages. Lust causes people to covet something other than what God has told them to lock their attention onto. I feel like I barely covered this today. And the clock went too fast. Somebody put two batteries in me. Yes. Don't make excuses for sin. Never do that for people. If you do, you're not loving them. The same thing we talk about. When you spank your children appropriately, not abuse them, only for foolishness, not for childishness, you are loving them. And the world tells you you are hating them. They've got it upside down. Same thing with this. Divorce is never the answer. Remarriage to another person that's not your original spouse is never the answer. Although many of you and many listening to me have already done that. I can't undo it. I'm not going to give you a list of my sins that I can't undo. It will not help you. But I can give you the answers from Jesus Christ. It's salvation in him alone. It meets our needs. This life is a vapor. Why do I want to have this temporary little short thing when I can have, make him eternally glorified by the life I lead? Let him work through my life. Let him do things that others would say that will never happen. I've seen people come to Christ that were mean, mean people and change overnight because they really came to Christ. That's what he wants. So if you're struggling with lust, it's the second one that he's brought up. Christ wants to set you free, not just the men, but the women also. And he wants to get you in the right direction. And I have four other sermons to answer more of those questions. But let's pray right now. Father, we are thankful to you. We have your truth. It's difficult for us to comprehend. We're looking into grammar and culture, context, looking into the history that surrounded a lot of this, and I can barely cover it in a short amount of time. But we have your truth. You put two people together for life. And they're not saying it as often today, but it's until death do us part. May we honor that. May we help people. May we disciple, pass on the wisdom, um, and live out the good works. Not of perfect marriages, but of, of, but of Christ-like attitudes and a spiritual growth and maturity that works through the struggles we have in our marriages to come out on the other side stronger, better, more Christ-like. May that be what you're doing today. There may be some sitting here or listening to me that are thinking about divorce, that are already starting to look for somebody else to replace the one they're with. Help them to not do that. Help them to see the lie of the devil, the mirage of the false storefront. Help them to trust you and to do it your way, knowing that you will give them what's best. And thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen.